Well, we continue in this series <clears throat> and uh, called Final Analysis as we are looking through, uh, marching through uh, an analysis of the end of time. <clears throat> and as we are this morning, we come today to one of the most talked about events uh, that is set to occur at the end of time, and that is the Battle of Armageddon. And so you have heard the phrase multiple times. You are no doubt quite familiar with the uh, battle of Armageddon, at least as you have uh, heard it talked about. And so this morning, as we come to it, uh, what uh, I hope you will discover is uh, taking away some of the, uh, I guess, the, the grand tales that are told about it, we discover a God who is completely in control and completely in charge. Now, just so that you know, let's kind of review our timeline, and uh, as we do, uh, we'll kind of get to where we are uh, this morning. Are you ready for that? All right, let's roll with that timeline. Uh, Here we go, Christ's first coming on the cross, and then after that, the uh, resurrection and ascension. Uh, Then we move from there to the establishment of the church at Pentecost. Uh, And then, uh, the reason we have Israel there is because Israel became a nation, and that was a uh, regained national status and uh, a historical uh, event there. Uh, I believe then the next major event in history is the rapture, because I take a pre-trib view of the rapture. If you take a post-trib view, then it's going to come later. And then following the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, which will last approximately seven years. And then after the great tribulation, that's where we bring us to today, uh, the, Arm- the battle of Armageddon. Next week, uh, uh, in, the, in two weeks, we'll talk about Christ, uh, the second coming of Christ and uh, differentiate that between the rapture of the church and his second coming. And uh, so this morning we look at this battle of Armageddon and we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 16, which Bill has read for us. This morning what I want you to learn as we go through and examine the battle of Armageddon as much as we can know about it, uh, I want you to learn some things about the battle in particular. Because I realized that while we talk about the battle of Armageddon and that remains yet future, that many of you have walked into this place this morning fighting your own battles. You are engaged in a battle right now. Some of you are engaged in a battle for your marriage, and that's a battle worth fighting, let me say. Uh, You're engaged in a battle for your marriage. Others of you are engaged in a battle for purity as you are single. And let me say, that's a battle worth fighting. Amen? Uh, You ought to fight that battle. Others of you are engaged in a battle against things, against a battle, against things that war inside of you. Uh, There are are habits that you have. There are uh, ways that you have been hurt in the past. There are things, sin, that has become addictive in nature. And you sit here this morning and you battle against your own sinful nature. Uh, Others of you, especially the students who kind of flank the front every Sunday, you battle uh, maybe more than the rest of us against the pressures of students around you. You battle against the pressures of 
of other people who would have you uh, do this or do that and you know it isn't right but you want to do it uh, because it feels good or at least you want their approval and so uh, you battle against the war. Ultimately, we battle against Satan. We're not exactly sure when. I would uh, caution all of us to be careful about just, you know, attributing everything to Satan, Uh, but we do battle against him. And so from this colossal battle at the end of time, we discover what I call three reinforcements for you. And they're all based on the reality that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Uh, And so we will discover that the battle is the Lord's when the enemy is marching forward. uh, Because that's what we discover in verse 12 of Revelation uh, 16. The sixth angel, uh, we're in the bowls of wrath now. And a few weeks ago I preached a sermon on uh, the tribulation period. And we talked about the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls. And we're in the bowls of wrath. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. If you were in my Old Testament class, either on Sunday night over at Montreat during the week, you would know exactly where the river Euphrates is. If you're looking, facing a map of Israel, you'll see a body of water in the north, which is the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. Up to the right, Mesopotamia has the Euphrates River on the south, the Tigris River on the top, and then the area between the two rivers is Mesopotamia. When God spoke to Abraham and said, I will multiply you and make you into a great nation, God gave Abram some borders. And the, the Euphrates River is the eastern border of the land promised to Abraham. And so it serves as a natural protection from, for Israel from enemies who would come across the Euphrates River and come, uh, come south then into Israel. And so what doesn't make sense here is why would God dry up the river? Let's think through this. Why would God dry up the river that is going to allow the kings to come in and wreak havoc on his people? But that's what happens. God dries up the Euphrates River so that the kings from the east can come in toward Jerusalem and wreak havoc. The battle belongs to the Lord even when the enemy is marching forward. And some of you are there right now. You are in a battle and you are wondering, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why is my business going in this direction? Why will you not stop uh, my husband from doing what he is doing? Why will you not? And you fill in the blank and it's, easy for you to fill in the blank. You are engaged in a battle. You're battling cancer. There's several of you who are battling cancer, and you look at this battle that you're in, and when you get a diagnosis that isn't so good, or a prognosis that isn't so good, immediately the thoughts come to your mind, and it can rattle your faith. Don't sit here, please. This isn't the place to come pretend that we don't struggle with our faith. Any faith that hasn't doubted isn't strong faith. 
Please hear me. Any faith that has never had its doubts, that has never had its tests, that has never had its trials, hasn't been fortified yet. Faith under fire. Faith that encounters doubt and engages the doubt and, and confronts the doubt is faith that grows. And so what we have here is this, this border on the east. God dries it up and so the kings can come in at the end of the great tribulation, and they can, they can make their way toward, uh, toward Jerusalem. Here is the problem if you're an Israelite. Number one, Israelites don't like water. All right, we established that a few weeks ago. Water isn't their favorite thing. It's always been a problem. Uh, they, they're right on the Mediterranean Sea, 400 miles of coastline. Uh, people coming across. The Philistines came across the water. We talked about that. But number two, when water has been in Israel's history, it's always been a good thing when God got rid of it. Right? The crossing of the Red Sea, God parts the water. When uh, Joshua then, they wander around forever and they're up in the plains of Moab and they're going to go across the Jordan River. What does God do? He parts the water. What appears here is that God is doing the exact reverse. He is parting the water, yes, but for who? The enemy. This doesn't make sense. You've got to understand that Israel will not make much sense of this when this happens because they look back on the most storied part of their history, and that is when Moses has Israel, and they're at the Red Sea. Let me read some of that for you, Exodus 14, 10 through 14. Uh, Moses has left Egypt. They've traveled south, and they are headed down into the Sinai Peninsula. And when Pharaoh drew near, uh, Pharaoh, uh, God, uh, he, he hardened his heart. God joined him in hardening it. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So they look in the rearview mirror, and who's coming? The Egyptians. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Well, isn't that a great thank you? Right? I mean, that's just a wonderful thank you. You've, uh, you, they're in this, uh, in this slavery for 400 years, and Moses gets them out of slavery. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us uh, to die in the wilderness? This is sarcasm 101, right? And uh, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, Idiots, all right? These guys are idiots. They're slaves for 400 years. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Wow. Moses' job is not easy. And Moses said to the people, I love what Moses said to them, shut up. No, he didn't say that. He said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work 
for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Well, he said shut up just at the end, okay? So, so he says, fear not, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, here's the difficulty, and we read back on this and go, wow, okay, that's a good thing to say. But, but Moses hadn't seen God part the sea yet. Pharaoh is still coming, and he says, the guys coming after you are going to be taken care of. It's easy for us to look back historically and go, okay, that's an easy thing for Moses to say because we know it happened. But Moses said it before it happened. Easy for us? Took a lot of faith for Moses, amen? It did. It did. My daughter plays volleyball, and this uh, Friday evening, she never plays on Friday, but this Friday night, they play Cape Fear. And Cape Fear is down in Wilmington, as you might imagine, and they were undefeated, and Hannah's team hasn't lost a regular season game in now two seasons. All right, so, so uh, uh, Hannah texts me. And I'm working outside on Friday afternoon, and she texts me, and it just said, Dad. Well, that always worries me. All right, so just Dad. And I said, what's up? And she texts me back, and she said, I'm so nervous. And I texted her back and said, great, Scott. You'll do fine. Right? That's what I said. So I said that, and then we get to the game, and Wendy had to work, and I'm texting Wendy from the game, and she's like, Jerry, you better give me play-by-play. Like, I want to know how it's going along through the game. I am so nervous, I can't text. Right? <laughs> I am so nervous, I can't text. And I'm telling Hannah via text, not to be worried, everything's going to be okay. And I'm so nervous, I can't text. Moses is looking at these people, a million plus people, he looks at them and says, listen, everything's going to be okay. And I have to believe that he turned around to the Lord and said, all right, here we go, you know, and there they go and they head toward the Red Sea and they've got to cross the Red Sea. And you know the story that, that, that they crossed the sea and when Pharaoh and his army crossed the sea, the waters came back and they overcame them. That's in Israel's history uh, but now what's about to be in their history is where God opens up a body or, or dries up a body of water again, but for the enemy to cross it. What does this tell us about God? The battle is the Lord's even when the enemy is marching forward. Don't ever miss that. In our perspective, in our concept, in our ability to see things, in our limited ability to see it, we struggle to understand. The second reinforcement is that the battle belongs to the Lord when the enemy is marshalling forces. John continues in his vision, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Remember, that's Satan, the beast. Remember, that's the Antichrist and the false prophet. That This is the unholy trinity. All right? This is the first time they are mentioned together in Scripture. We've seen them introduced, and now they're mentioned together. They're an unleashing, an all-out attack on God and his people. And these unclean spirits come out, and they look like frogs. Why does that matter? Because if you go to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 10, it classifies the frog as an unclean animal. And so the frog is an unclean animal. It's one of the plagues was a frog, were, were frogs. And so this unclean spirit that is coming out of their mouths is performing, uh, uh, coming out of their mouths and they're performing signs. 
Why are they performing signs? Because there are a bunch of kings they're trying to rally, and they want those kings to marshal forces. And so if they can do things that are really spectacular and cool and incredible, those kings will look at that, and when the kings look at that, they'll go, wow, we should join forces. Remember when we talked about the Antichrist, how, how attractive he would be and how he would be somebody that everybody would want to follow. And I would say this, anybody who could go into the Middle East and bring peace, whoever it is who is ultimately able to do that, will have gained the respect, the admiration of the entire world. There's no doubt about that. And so if he can, in the first half, I think, of the Great Tribulation is a peace treaty with Israel, whoever is able to do this will be so viewed, viewed as such an amazing person that he will or she will be worshipped. So what happens? These, uh, these spirits go out to who? To all the, king, to the kings of the whole world. And they cast their spell on them to convince them to assemble for battle. Against whom? Against God and Israel. Against God and God's people. And the battle is going to ensue. The kings are going to come in from the east. The kings are going to come in from the west. Kings are going to come in from the north. And it's going to be a phenomenal battle that day. But there is a little phrase here. If you miss it, you totally miss it. All right, if this is happening and these kings are coming in uh, from all over the place and this is one united front against God and his people, wow, are they not going to be puffed up and proud and excited about what they're doing? But notice what John calls it. The great day of God the Almighty. It isn't the great day of the Antichrist. Armageddon isn't the great day of the Antichrist. Armageddon will not be, it will not be the great day of the dragon. Armageddon will not be the great day of the false prophet. Please hear me. Armageddon will be the great day of God, the Almighty. Doesn't matter how many kings you march in. It doesn't matter how many forces the enemy marshals. It doesn't matter. It will be the great day of God the Almighty. You need to write this down. Your worst day is still the great day of God the Almighty. Your worst day is still God's greatest day. He has never encountered anything too hard for him. Nothing. No circumstance, no difficulty, absolutely nothing. If you were here a year ago, many of you were, it was a year ago, about this week, maybe two weeks ago, that I walked into this pulpit and shared with you through tears that I had to be away for some period of time because overnight our son had become ill. Overnight, totally surprised us, totally caught us off guard. We didn't know what the diagnosis was completely. Uh, We just knew that we had lost Trent, that his anxiety had taken over him, and that he uh, had, at that point, had six or seven uh, hour-long bouts of, of screeching, screaming fear when he would lie in fetal position and I would simply hold him, when we would go for hours that I could not be out of his sight, literally could not be in a room next to, to the room in which he was in. And I walked up here 
I remember just a few days before that sitting in my office with the staff and informing them of what was uh, about to happen and weeping violently in my office, loud, as my heart was broken. I remember Tuesday of that week of driving down uh, to see Hannah play ball in Spartanburg. I'm driving down 221, and I can hardly see the road because the tears are streaming down my face, and I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know what has happened in my house. I have this kid who is just uh, gregarious. He's just over the top most of the time. He's, he's just outgoing, and all of a sudden, for me just to leave him with his mother to go see Hannah play ball because we had decided that everything in our family would go exactly like it had before this happened to him as much as it could. For me to do that left him screaming on the porch as I drove off from him and drove down the road. But at that point, I had had five days of total contact and I just had to have a break. And I remember driving down and just tears streaming uh, down my face and begging God, God, what do I do? And his doctor had prescribed a heavy-duty antipsychotic medicine to him. And God, do I give this to my 10-year-old? What do I do? Where do I go from here? I was so clueless. I was hurting so badly. And I remember praying this prayer, and it sounded so selfish. It sounded so wrong. But I said, God, if this is the rest of his life, if this is it, you can take him. I've enjoyed the 10 years, but I do not know if I can do this day in and day out, day in and day out. God, I don't know. And I felt, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. Everything has escaped me. All the wisdom, all the people I've counseled through all the years has flown right out the window. I don't know who to call. I don't know what to say. And I remember just screaming in my truck, driving down the road to God. God, you've got to come through. If you've ever come through, I just need wisdom. I'm not asking you to heal my son. Give me wisdom right now today to know what to do. It was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. I know you have, some of you have been through things just like this. I remember driving down that road and it looked just like the enemy was coming in like a flood. And I remember driving down the road and all of a sudden in that little red truck, the peace of God just moved in and God sat down in the passenger seat right beside me. I never saw him. I kept on driving. I couldn't touch him. I never heard his voice out loud. It was nothing like that. But I lie you not, by the time I got to Spartanburg Methodist College, I was, I was there to watch Hannah play and be Hannah's dad. And God, the Holy Spirit, had just sat down right beside me. I'm convinced I was crying so hard he had to drive a couple of times, which he probably has to drive a lot of times for me. You guys know that. And so I'm probably the best driving I ever did. I mean, we probably should establish that. But I get there, and I'm sitting there watching Hannah play, and I'm drained. I am beat. I am weary. But I am at peace. Why? Because the battle is the Lord when the enemy is marshalling forces. Amen? Some of you sit here right now and you're facing battles that I know about because you've told me about them. You've got a surgery coming up this week or you're, you're hoping that God uh, comes through and, and the diagnosis is good or you, you just want your marriage to work and as do I. I hope for all of those things for you. But I can tell you this from personal experience that God fights for you. 
that, that those kings in the battle of Armageddon, when they come in, they're going to think, wow, look at us. Look at us. You know, they've been... They've done all the conference calls. They've gotten it all together. They've coordinated the effort. But John says, it is the great day of God the Almighty. Your worst day is still his great day. Never, ever forget that. Now, they're going to a place called Megiddo. That's where Armageddon comes from, the valley or the mound of Megiddo, depending on how it's translated. Megiddo is just kind of northwest of uh, of the Sea of Galilee, it's on the uh, it's called the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris, which is was the trade route, and there were a lot of battles that took place there in the north on Megiddo. But one of the most notable battles that took place there, you're familiar with, a guy by the name of Gideon. Uh, Gideon uh, was a, a poli- political leader. He was a judge during the time of the judges. So he was a political leader, and God called him, and he just had no clue why. Why would God call me, he says, because, uh, number one, I'm little. All right, so evidently he was diminutive. Uh, I'm little. Number two, I'm from the smallest clan. Like, I, I'm, from, uh, I'm from the nobodies. God, why would you call me? I, I'm little, and I'm from the little people, the little group of people. Like, we're just a little group of people. I'm a little guy. Why would you call me to lead this nation when all the enemies are coming in from everywhere. But God called him, and Gideon didn't go, go easily. He had to lay out some fleeces and stuff like that, okay? Let me just say to you, not a good idea today. We have the Holy Spirit. But, but Gideon had to lay out fleeces and do this kind of stuff. And when he did, uh, he said, okay, well, there was a host of Midianites who had camped along that, the west bank of the Jordan River. They were just camped out there. They were everywhere. As a matter of fact, it's hyperbole, but they're described like sand of the seashore, sprinkled out and camped along. And God said, Gideon, I want you to, to go and, and, and take care of them. All right? I'll go. Gideon gets the army together. How many does he have? 32,000. And God looks at him and says the funniest thing. He says, well, Gideon, you got too many people. <laughs> what? That's like telling a preacher too many people are coming to his church, right? What? You got too many people. Uh, God says, I want you to go, and I want you to make an announcement. And after you make an announcement, you'll have some people left. So Gideon goes, and he says, all right, God has told me that if you're scared, you don't have to go. All right? If you're scared. And 22,000 say, I'm scared. <laughs> 22,000 of the 32,000 turn tail and run, and they go home. And Gideon is left with how many now? Do the math. 10,000, right? He's got 10,000. <laughs> At least I have 10,000. So he goes back. He's got 10,000 now. And God says, uh, you know, Gideon, uh, you still have too many. What? You still have too many. You know, Gideon, if you win with 10,000, you guys are going to think you pulled this off. So, so let's, let's take care of it. I want them to drink water. Really? All right, so we have two qualifications right now to be or not be in Gideon's army. Number one, are you scared? All right, you're out. All right, number two, let's go drink water. So Gideon takes them down to the stream, and he has all 10,000 of them uh, kneel and drink water. And God says to Gideon, those who got down on their knees like this, and when they did, they took the water in their hands, and they uh, brought it up to their mouth. I want you to keep them. And those who lapped water like dogs, send them away. Well, guess what? 300 (laughs) drank water like this. 
300. So we've gone from 3,200. We don't even have, you know, we don't even have 10% now. We've gone from 32, uh, I'm sorry, we've gone from 32,000. We only have 1%. 32,000 down to 10,000. We've got 300 guys. And God says, all right, Gideon, we're ready. <laughs> sure. Sure, God, I'm up for this. And then God says, here's the battle plan. Well, Gideon's scared. And God says, Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to go down where the Midianites are camping. And then I love what God says to Gideon. He says, now, if you're scared, take so-and-so with you. And he lists the guy's name. Like, Gideon, if you're scared to go by yourself, <laughs> you know, a little dark, uh, take somebody with you. And so Gideon takes somebody with him so he won't be scared. So it's Gideon, and this is guy going with him, and they head down. And, and Gideon overhears, this guy had a dream, and he dreamt that, uh, that, that a bell of hay, I mean, I'm, I'm serious, uh, just rolled into the camp, barley, something like that, rolled into the camp, and uh, it, it just destroyed them. All right, this Midianite had that dream. And, and the other guy said, who is it? What is that? And uh, he said, it's that Gideon guy. He's going to destroy us. So Gideon heard so he goes back up and he says, God, you know, God, this is what's happened. And God spoke directly with him. And God said, okay, Gideon, uh, here's what I want you to do. I need, need you to get some things together, you know, to fight. What is it, God? Uh, trumpets, jars, and uh, candles. Okay. That'll work, right? Right? So, like, if this had happened today, we'd have Yankee candles and, and, and party things. Right? What you going to do? I go, go kick some tail. All right, it's Friday night football. <laughs> this will work. So, uh, so what we're going to do, Gideon, is if you'll take the candle, put it in the jar, all right? Put it in the jar. Take your 300 guys, divide them in groups of three. So we're going to have 100 here, 100 there, and 100 there. We're going to surround the Midianites who are, who, you know, like, like ants down there. And, and we're going to blow these things. And when, when you blow and you Bust the jar. All right, I'll blow, but I won't bust the jar. When you blow and you bust the jar, all right, Yankee Candle, party favor. When you do that, you win. <laughs> really? All right, so here we go. Right? How does that win a battle? How? I mean, it's this in the Bible. You should read it, all right? It's in there. Judges chapter 7. You should read it. It's good stuff. And so, so Gideon looks at his 300 guys who are left, all right, because they drink water, right? And so they're left, and he says, all right, we're going to divide up in groups of, uh, groups of 100, three of three. You go there. I'll stay here with my group, and you go over there, and you get your Yankee candles and get your party favor. And when I do my, and I bust my Yankee candle, then you guys go, and bust your Yankee candles, and we're going to win. Yeah, I want to be on his team. This is the guy I want to follow in the battle, right? And so what happens? So they surround the Midianites, and they look down, and there they are. They're scattered. I mean, they're just everywhere, Scripture says. They're like the sands on the seashore, on the Jordan River. They're there. They're everywhere. And Gideon goes, okay, folks, here we go. And he goes, and he busts the jar. And when he does, all his hundred people do it. And then, then like in a chorus, you know, they go, and they bust their Yankee candles. And then over here, and they bust their Yankee candles. And what happens? The people hear the, uh, the, the trumpets and they hear, the, 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 they see the torches and the jars and they bust. And they go, oh, oh, that dream has come true. And they turn on each other. 
down in the valley. And while these 300 people watch, while these 300 people watch these, uh, the, the guys who made through the, you know, the, they cut and made the team, while they watch, they just destroy themselves. You know what Gideon does? He goes running back to Ephraim and he says, hey, scaredy cats, come back, come back. I mean, honestly, he doesn't call them scary cats, but he says, come on back. Uh, they're running for their lives. We've got to go take care of them. So he gets all the other, you know, thousands and they go and they win the battle. Wow. Why in the world would God do that? This is at the same place that the battle of Armageddon is supposed to take place. At Megiddo. Why would God do that in Judges 7? Because it's as ridiculous to think that the kings of all of the earth are going to come up against the king of all the earth as it is to win a battle with kazoos and Yankee candles. Amen? Your worst day is God's great day. Whatever it is you're going through, your worst day is his opportunity to come through with glory and power and might and to show himself strong. The battle belongs to the Lord when the enemy is marshaling forces. Finally, the battle belongs to the Lord when the enemy is sinning flagrantly. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Now we start talking about that great city, Babylon. By all accounts, this is Rome. Uh, That great city, Babylon, in John's day, it would have been Rome, but Babylon has always been the picture of rebellion against God. Always. Always. And so Babylon fell, and the cities of the nation fell. Remember, there's one government now, a one-world government, and And the beauty of that is when the center of that goes down, the entire government goes down. And so in the next section, Babylon falls. This phrase, and God remembered Babylon the great, is huge. Why? Because, please hear me, If there is no ultimate judgment of sin, God cannot be a just God. Now, while you may back away and go, oh, Jerry, it's 2013, ease up. If while you were riding to church this morning, somebody rear-ended you and messed up your car, the very thing that's going to rise up in you is they have to pay. And that is exactly fair and right. It is as preposterous to say, I don't think there should be a judgment as it is to say that the person who rammed into your car shouldn't pay the bill. What the judgment does is it ultimately takes care of injustice. And God remembered Babylon. Now, why did Babylon need to be remembered? Because 
Because when God remembers Babylon, he makes her drain, that means empty, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So this is the final cup. It's poured full with the fury of the wrath of God. And he goes up to Babylon and he says, I remember, now drink. And, and just in case that Babylon wants to get a sip, God says, no, you'll take all the medicine down to the last drop. You will drain the, the cup of the fury of my wrath. Why? Because Revelation 17, verse 2, verse 4, 18, 3, 9 through 13, tell us the cup that Babylon had been drinking beforehand. What was it? Revelation 17, 2 says, with whom, uh, or let's go to 14, 8 first. Babylon, quote, made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon was throwing her own party, and her party was sexual immorality. Her party was do anything you want, any way you want. And so she, Babylon, that great city that came against God, rebellion against God, said, hey, who cares what God says? Do whatever you want. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. So what happened? Babylon then brings all the other nations in and says, hey, we're having this big drunken orgy. Just join us. Anything goes. It's okay. It doesn't really matter what you do. Revelation 17.2 repeats the sentiment. With whom, Babylon, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So Babylon helps lead the entire world into sexual immorality. Revelation 18.3, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now we combine sexual immorality with greedy materialism. Greedy materialism. Not only are we going to have our worldwide orgies, but we're also going to amass wealth. Revelation 18, 9 through 13, in the kings of the earth. By the way, Revelation 17 describes Babylon. Revelation 18 is like a funeral song for her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of, uh, uh, of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. Why don't we just tag on to the end of the necessities of life? Human beings sold as slaves. Please hear me. Please hear me. Sin, which promises freedom, ultimately brings bondage. Sin will never free you. It will feel good. It will seem to free you. It will seem to create in you a sense of being able to do something that somebody else says you can or shouldn't do. But this great nation, don't miss this. All the kings of the earth are bowing down to has slaves. And they don't care. Wow. Wow. John calls them human souls. Babylon thought of them as sheer commodities. Means to an end. Enable me to live my luxurious life. Do what I want to do when I want to do it. How I want to do it. Horrific. Sin is that way. Just a few weeks on Orphan Sunday, you're going to hear from two different speakers that day. It's going to be a remarkable day. You'll hear some information about it this week. One of those speakers leads a ministry in Western North Carolina where she helps rescue girls between the ages of 12 and 18 who are trafficked. Not in Chicago, not in Los Angeles, not in New York. Last year, Marion, 15-year-old girl at a party, two guys at the party for one purpose alone, find girls to take to a brothel in Marion. They dropped something in her drink to where that she is no longer in control of her faculties. But it wasn't enough to debilitate her. She ends up at this brothel surrounded by young women entertaining men for pay and begins to scream. And the woman in charge of the brothel orders her to leave the two teenagers the the two guys who went to the party to find a girl return her drop her off at the party in her stupor but she is able to call her mother who involves the FBI Marion, just get in your car and drive to work tomorrow. This is where we live. I'm sure the girl shouldn't have been at the party, number one. 
I'm sure all her friends were there. Sounded like good fun. The girl in Charlotte wasn't so fortunate. She was 17. Same thing happened to her. When she came to, she had no idea how many men she had been with and was found three months later. Thankfully alive. Totally violated. Oh, but it looks so good on the front, doesn't it? There isn't a commercial that sells it poorly. There's not a friend who will invite you to such a party who will paint that picture, is there? Oh, but mom and dad, you're so old-fashioned. Good for you, mom and dad. Oh, but, but mom and dad, everybody else is doing it. Well, mom and dads, here's your line. I'm not everybody else's mom. I'm not everybody else's dad. Isn't it interesting that liberated people end up being so bound? That's what's discovered here. The battle is the Lord's, even when people are sinning flagrantly. While reveling in her sin, Babylon thought she would never be brought to account. She would go on without any consequences. But God said, here, here. Now, do you understand why judgment is necessary? Because if you're like me, I'm a father of a daughter. I want to take that woman who runs that brothel and and, and do things to her that are ungodly and would put me in jail. I'm just being honest. But one day... God will take the judgment of his wrath in Babylon and he will say, drink it until there's not a drop left. And he will be right and just in doing so. John Phillips writes, the Holy Land has been chosen by God as the stage upon which two crucial events take place, one on a mountain and one in a plain. Mount Calvary and the plain of Megiddo, the two altars of sacrifice that dominate the history of the world. Both are bloodbaths. Both are the descent of wrath upon sin. Both are brought about by God's bitterest foes. From each proceeds a supper, one a feast of remembrance for the people of God, and the other a feast of retribution. At Mount Calvary, there rang up the gates of heaven, a victorious cry. It is finished. And if you look here, if you look here in verse 17 of chapter 16 of Revelation, do not miss this. Underline it because what God says here is it is done. He said on Calvary, it is finished. And at Calvary, all of the wrath of God for the sin of all of humanity who would trust him as, as their savior was poured on Jesus Christ. And Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. But here, the same Jesus cries as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, it is done. 
It is done. And he will force Babylon to drink the cup of the fury of his wrath. It is done. I'll finish with this. When we were in Israel. I shared this in my Old Testament class Sunday night. When we were in Israel... We were at the, the place of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and when if you look up the mountains, top steep, very steep mountain, you look up the mountain, and when you do, you go right across and you'd be at Jerusalem, but it's on the mountain, so you have to go around that mountain to get to Jerusalem. So we're looking at the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, amazing place, phenomenal experience. Steve Scoggins, who helped lead our trip, he called me to the side, he said, Jerry, let me tell you something. I said, what is it, Steve? He said, if you look right there, as a crow flies across that mountain, that's Jerusalem. And he said, on the Day of Atonement, came once a year, on the Day of Atonement, what they would do is they'd take a goat, and uh, Aaron the high priest would take that goat, and he would transfer all the sins of the people onto that goat, and they send that goat off into the wilderness. And the way they did it is they had men ever so often to make sure the goat followed its trek all the way to the wilderness, to the cliff, and the goat would simply walk to its death over the cliff, taking the sins of all the people away. And there's where we get the term scapegoat, all right? That's where it comes from. And so that scapegoat, this goat would be the scapegoat for the sins of the people. But here's what he said. He said, Jerry, those men will be lined all the way out. And when that goat plunged to its death, voluntarily plunged to its death, that guy right here who saw the goat go would turn and yell back to the next guy, who would turn and yell back to the next guy, who would yell back to the next guy until they got all the way to the temple, to the high priest who had just left the Holy of Holies, and they would say one phrase. And do you know what that phrase was? It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished until it made it all the way back to the temple. Let me tell you something. That happened in the Old Testament. It was no accident that Christ on the cross said these words right before all the sins of the world as the scapegoat of all scapegoats were laid on him. Christ said what? It is finished. It is no mistake that at the end of time, Christ himself is going to say, It is done. It is done when Babylon falls and sin is dealt with ultimately and for all and Christ ultimately reigns supreme. Amen? Amen. We serve an amazing Savior. We serve a great Jesus who died for you, who declares for you, it is finished. And one day we'll declare against every enemy that comes up against you, it is done. Let's pray.